0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue for my comic book collection, which most episodes, except this one, I pick with some degree of randomness. Any book for my comic collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 56th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at Loki, Agent of Asgard, numbers 1 and 2, from Marvel Comics, covered it in April and May 2014. But first, a little feedback. On episode 53, the Doctor Doom episode, future potential podcaster Bradley Null wrote in, I have wondered for years how Christoph the Pretender ended up on the throne of Latveria. It is good to have this historical information. Well, Bradley, I am an educator. It is my responsibility to educate. I am sure Doom would have returned the child to normal had the Richards clan not interfered. Thanks to the so-called supposed genius of Richards, the child he used as a weapon would sit and make war upon Latveria's true monarch. It is my belief that all harm caused by this war is the fault of Reed Richards, and he should be held accountable. Hail Doom, Bradley Man. You know, Bradley always seemed like a smart fella, and now he proves it. He does that a PS, though. Good luck holding Reed accountable for anything. He saved the life of a planet-eater and didn't get brought to justice. Richards! Bradley Mann also wrote in on the Amalgam books, covered in Episodes 54 and 55. First, a note on the dead universe phenomenon. Despite the fact that being a fan of comic books, another traditionally episodic fiction that never ends, I personally like my stories to have an end the comic book stories i love all have solid endings most of what i enjoy is from no longer relevant continuities that suffer from dup dead universe phenomenon someone needs to start a blog or a podcast about dup about voided universes you know if only we could find someone who has been you know emotionally affected by it but maybe who has a name that's suggested of The Void, or of, of, you know, naught. That guy would be perfect. Huh. Anyway, Bradley continues. I bought the first wave of Amalgam together with the last three issues of DC vs. Marvel. They were all enjoyably brilliant or enjoyably bad. The letters pages were astounding, yes. Even the trading cards were great. I do agree on the letter pages, though I did not even know there were trading cards like I was talking with both uh, Sean and Trentis. If you're going to have this premise, you have to buy into it 100% to make it work. Bradley continues, The second wave of Amalgam was better, where good and so much more mockable, where bad. But I love it all. The feeling of getting comics, both good and bad, from the universe next door was really pretty cool. Doctor Strange Fate was my favorite of the Amalgam line, I'm the guy who loves magic in his comics, and i love Dr. Fate since I was seven. This is the only Amalgam book that is also part of the DC vs. Marvel crossover, by the way. See, Bradley bringing some knowledge as well. On Challengers of the Fantastic, he said it should be noted that this issue ties directly into the Spider-Boy issue released in the second wave. When this came out, I was reading the old Jack Kirby run of the Challengers. I had read an article in which Jack talked about who he based the FF on, and he tied directly Prof to Reed and Rocky, and he, of course, said he loved the final image. Because Dr. Doomsday on Cosmic Skis, of course everyone loves that final image. I hope. Loved listening to your take on this. An actual Amalgam fan, Bradley Null. Again, thanks, Bradley. I'm glad those shows passed the inspection, Of an actual Amalgam fan. And you know, Bradley, if you're going to start that Dead Universe show soon, I guess I'm going to have to squeeze in some of my DUP issues pretty quickly. We also got positive Facebook responses to the episode from Manuel Carmona, Ed Moore, Zeb Oswalt, and Shag Matthews. Ed managed to mention his Dr. Fate podcast, Lords of Order. Shag also posted this. Can't wait to listen. Love the Quarterbin Podcast and love me some Dr. Fate. Plus Sean Angle, too. Woot, woot. And then he posted, Oh, wow. A few minutes into the show and I'm already getting slammed. So much for the warm fuzzies. Shag, as I say regularly, we kid because we care. Zeb also said that both episodes uh, were cool. Christopher Willett said he loved the Amalgam concept. Thanks, guys. Jason Trenner wrote in about both issues and made a point in his email that he was not going to mention the Transformers, and then spent a paragraph explaining why he was not going to mention the Transformers, which I'm pretty sure counts as him mentioning the Transformers. He also made a similar point that Trendus made, saying that there was a time that Swamp Thing was a non-viable property as the challengers are now, so I should not give up hope on them being viable at some point in the future. He also said that he's a big fan of the Fantastic Four. I have trades from various eras, and I enjoy them all. The Challengers of the Fantastic is an interesting nod to the 70s FF of Roy Thomas's era. Along with both JLX comics, Jason said he enjoyed Doctor Strange Fate and Challengers of the Fantastic. Both were awesome looking forward to loki agent of asgard one and two and how those ended up a quarter or less as they're pretty good stuff well i thank everyone for the feedback and jason i thank you for the segue loki agent of asgard issues one and two each had cover prices of 2.99 meaning I acquired them at over 91% discounts. Both issues were written by Al Ewing, with art by Lee Garbit. I'm going to synopsize both books right here, and then go over notes for both books together. There were a few variant covers of issue one, but I have the standard cover by Jenny Frisson, and it shows Loki with a sword in one hand and, and smoky, magical power flowing from his other hand, He looks like a younger guy than we're used to, but not a kid, maybe 20-something. He's wearing a smaller set of the Golden Horns here. The first story, titled Trust Me, starts with the caption, Trust me, I know what I'm doing. It also starts with Loki stabbing Thor from behind with a sword. We then jump back a few hours to an apartment where Loki is taking a very sexy, sexy, Tom Hiddleston-style shower. Hello, ladies. But he is interrupted by the appearance of the Allmother in his mirror, and all three parts of the Allmother have a mission for him. He is their agent. We then see him in some cool magic boots running up the side of a tower. Avengers Tower, as a matter of fact. He also has a vanishing cloak so he can spy on the Avengers unseen. He sees Thor getting cranky at Jarvis. Come on, man, you can be short with someone, but with Jarvis, he is a super butler, the best ever. But Thor is pretty super hot-headed here. He actually throws his hammer through a window at Loki, who he can actually sense there, even though he can't see him. I guess Loki has then lost the invisibility cloak on his way falling down the building, because his fall does catch the attention of Hawkeye and Black Widow and he is saved from plummeting to his death by a grappling arrow. This does, however, leave Loki surrounded by Avengers. We really need to stop meaning like this, he quips, and we are reminded that he is their Starro, the Avengers originally assembled to take on the threat of Loki. Of course, back then in the past, he was much older than he is now because of time. Responding to a question from Thor, Loki does the unexpected. He tells the truth. He is working on behalf of the All Mother, before pulling a little misdirection to distract them and slip right by. Right by them to the Avengers supermaster database. Machines are easier to trick than people, believe it or not. They are incredibly gullible. Loki proceeds to delete every piece of information that the Avengers, Shield, and anyone else may have on him. He wants to delete these memories of how he used to be in the past, when he was older and more evil. In the time it takes Loki to do this, the Avengers do catch up on him. Thor recommends killing Loki, and when his teammates aren't so sure about that, Thor tries to do it himself. But Mjolnir grows impossibly heavy for him, allowing Loki to slip behind him and stab him, a la the opening page of the issue. We learn that Thor's most recent encounter with Malekith drew a strange type of diseased corruption into him, thus his violent outbursts of late, and general unpleasantness toward Jarvis, which, if I didn't mention already, totally uncalled for, dude. We jump back to the shower scene, hello, ladies, and learn that the sword that Loki used for this mission was Graham, a sort of truth which Loki admits is not a weapon he normally has in his arsenal. The sword works as the All-Mother anticipated, freeing Thor from this disease-contamination stuff, which is promptly sealed in a special jar that Loki had brought along just for that purpose. And then the Hulk knocks him out cold. Hulk doesn't say puny god, but I think we're all allowed to say it in our heads. A short time later, in a cell... Thor and Loki talk about whether they've changed over time, whether they can change. Will Thor always be a bully to Loki, who in turn will always trick him? Thor then asks Loki if he has time for a drink. You know, brother, before you make your inevitable escape. After Loki makes his inevitable escape, he presents the Jar of Disease Corruption to the All-Mother, who reiterate his terms of service, which also serves as the mission statement for this entire title. For every mission accomplished, one deed of Loki's is removed from Asgard's history books. As they dismiss him, Loki advises the All-Mother to toss the jar into a bottomless pit. But he is instead simply commanded to leave. And as he does, the jar is opened, and the corruption inside takes a familiar shape. That of the older, evil Loki. Loki. He apologizes to the All-Mother for the convoluted nature of this meeting, but I wish to talk about the future. And boy, oh boy, does my Doctor Who loving brain ever hurt now. There was one variant for issue number two, but again, I have the standard cover, again by Jenny Friesen. This shows Loki in his small set of horns, with a goblet in front of him and a hand reaching toward him holding a rose. Did I mention that Loki looks eerily like John Travolta on this cover? I mean, it's weird. The story, Loki and Lorelai sitting in a tree, starts at a speed-dating event. No, really, it starts at a speed-dating event. We see through the eyes of a participant rejecting every man who sits before her. She seems to possess the ability to see through all types of lies and misdirection, which makes for a pretty funny few pages. And then Loki sits before her, after asking him some pointed questions about cosplay, and then we see her for the first time, a tattooed redhead with a really cute pair of glasses. He informs the woman honestly what he is doing, and she can tell that it is not a lie. As crazy as it sounds, Loki appeared at the speed dating meetup because he is looking for someone. Someone named Lorelei. Someone who is the younger sister of Amora the Enchantress. We see that three weeks earlier the All Mother manifested to Loki to give him his next assignment. Loki's new job is a big one find all the Asgardians loose on Earth. Lorelei in particular. Loki and Lorelei were once somewhat close with a keen use of analytical tools such as newspapers and the internet loki notices that lorelei has been committing crimes on an annual basis one solid month per year of con's grifts scams and swindles all to bankroll the real job which seems to be looting a casino in monte carlo with a billion euros in the most secure impregnable vault known to man before the heist she'd see me coming afterwards she'd be gone so if I wanted to catch her it had to be during three super hot ladies with cool hats and shiny handguns walk onto the casino floor as security approaches them they vanish leaving just their hats behind and they have appeared right in front of the vault door. While one of the lady thieves gets to cracking the lock, an Interpol agent tries to arrest them, until Lorelai gives him a magical, mystical smooch. An oldie but a goodie. He can dream dreamy dreams of romance for an hour or two, while we get on with the heist. As the lock is getting ready to give, Lorelei sends one of her hired thieves to fetch the car, only for the accomplice to be caught by the police which does surprise the thief, seeing as she is supposed to have an invisibility charm and all, except that the invisibility charm she had been given had been stolen by Loki and switched for a fake. This leaves Lorelei alone with her other accomplice, who turns out to be a shape-shifted Loki, which totally surprises Lorelei. The Loki I knew wouldn't have worn that form for so long. Maybe I'm not the Loki you knew. Lorelei had brought a magic bag of holding as a way of making out with all of the cash, but she leaves behind the billion euros and disappears herself through the magic bag, leaving Loki alone in a vault with a large amount of cash, and he does wander off with his fair share of it. Back in the present at this speed-dating meetup, Loki is wrapping up his story, Lorelei is desperate to acquire new funds the old-fashioned way, mugging speed-daters. But Loki and Lorelei are not the only magic users at the place. Here's the thing, he says. I've worn an illusion this whole time. Everyone here sees me as a 40-year-old divorcee named Ken. Everyone except you. I'm curious as to Why? And the redhead tells her story. I am Verity Willis. Nobody's ever lied to me, because nobody can. Verity can see right through lies, every lie. Loki departs to check on Lorelai. I have a mission to attend to. Outside, Loki tells Lorelai that he has obviously failed in his mission to bring her back to Asgardia. She asks why Loki is letting her go, and he mentions that he might require her services for a caper of his own. As the two walk and talk, Loreline notes that he seemed to be taken with that lady at the meet-up, Miss Verity Willis. Curiosity, he claims, brushing off her comments. I have already put her from my mind. Verity, spying from down the street, mutters under her breath, Liar. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 Greatest Marvel Stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. And we're back. These are by far the most recent books I have ever found in a quarter bin. And was shocked, shocked when I did find them. And I bought them in 2014, the year of their cover date. With the exception of free comic book day books, I have never covered a book here on the show within a year of when it was published. And the half-priced books location that I got these at do have dollar boxes. How these issues just bypassed that price point and went straight to the quarter bins, I don't understand. And not to spoil my thoughts on the issues, but I guess my first confusion is why someone would dump these at half price books so quickly after they hit the stands, which is why I skipped randomness and just decided to cover these issues here while they were still really pretty fresh, pretty new. Shag! Come on in off the ledge. It's going to be okay. The prior 55 episodes still count. I just didn't want these issues to sit in the database and get picked in a year or two or three, which would sort of defeat the novelty of them being such new books, such recent books. So, here we are. On to the issues. What I learned from the recap page in issue one is that Loki felt trapped by being the god of evil, the bad son, the villain, and would be trapped until the day he died. And so, he died. For soon he was reborn into a new youthful body, free to choose his own fate, with missions from the All-Mother ruling Triumvirate of Asgardia, to help polish his sparkling reputation. And the first issue is just that. He gets an assignment from the all And he accomplishes it, and he also does a little bit of self-serving work. I don't think that removing himself from the Avengers database was part of the mission, but at its core, he is still Loki, a little self-centered, so that bit seemed to fit his personality just fine. So that first issue was totally self-contained until that last page with the older Loki, who, even though he's dead, is still hanging around because magic... In Jason Aaron's Thor God of Thunder, he has three versions of Thor running around those books. The standard Thor from the Avengers, along with a much younger version, and a, a much older one who has become the King of Asgard. So, if the Thor title can have three Thors running around, I think that the Loki title can have two Lokis running around. And not only did that not bother me, I, I, I dug it. And Issue 1 contains a foreshadowing of Loki's ability to shapeshift, or at least pull off a glamour of some kind, which is a a key part of the plan in Issue 2. Part of his distraction of the Avengers is to get Hawkeye to fire an arrow into him, but he's not Loki, he's actually Banner. And with an arrow in his shoulder, the good Dr. Banner totally hulks out. It is under the cover of this distraction that Loki is able to get his few minutes with the database. So that first issue was quite strong. It told a complete story that really gives the reader an idea of what the title is about, while also including that last page to reveal that there is something bigger and and more expansive going on here than than we may have thought. Issue 2, interestingly enough, does not pick up with that cliffhanger of Issue 1. As a matter of fact, that reveal of old Loki has no effect at all in the goings-on of Issue 2, from what I can tell. And I think I like that. We are continuing with the basic premise of Loki doing a job for the all So as long as Ewing comes back to that at some point in the future, the, the old Loki, that works. No rush. I'm a fan of the long game in comics, so again, that, that works for me. And I absolutely loved the idea of the speed dating event first. I I don't think I've seen that type of event used in comic book. It's probably happened before, but it is certainly an unusual setting. But boy, did it make sense. Because if you're telling a story about deception, about committing acts of uh, trickeration, is there a better place than speed dating? It's, It's brilliant. In the course of the recap, I did not mention that the female character played by Loki as part of Lorelei's gang went by the name of Trixie. I didn't catch that big hint during the reading, but I have faith in you listeners that if I'd mentioned the word Trixie a few times, you might have caught that there was indeed a trick happening. But that joke, the name, did not really call attention to itself, so even though Ewing gave us a clue, it wasn't so telegraphed that it ruined the surprise, and and that's a narrow path for a writer to walk. And I thought he did a good job there. There was also some good humor throughout these books in Issue 1, when Hawkeye and Widow find Loki. This is obviously the first time that they've seen him in his younger guise. Clint asks Natasha if she's sure this is Loki, because he looks kind of one-direction-y. Another funny moment is in Issue 2, and how the all-mother manifests last time it was in a mirror as he gets you know, out of the shower hello ladies but here while loki is planning a party a chance to meet his new neighbors they manifest by taking their shape in the punch floating right out of the punch bowl then when they depart it splooshes onto the new carpet ruining loki's day and of course there are some funny asides and humorous visuals relating to the speed dating process. But of course, the key to the second issue is this new character, Verity. And yes, her name is a bit on the nose, but that's okay. She's just a great idea for a foil for Loki, the trickster, the liar, the deceiver. Spoilers for next episode. I have the first five issues of this series, and we're going to be covering them all. And I read them at the start of this year, but I don't remember exactly where her character goes. Other than that, she sticks around. But as a comrade, or as a potential antagonist even, she is exactly his opposite number. He has trouble telling the truth, and she cannot be lied to. It's a great idea, and in just a few pages that she's here, we learn a lot about her, and it's kind of intense. She can't watch a movie, or read a novel, because they aren't true. All she reads is pure mathematics, pure science. She is disconnected socially by this trait, and is incredibly lonely. Hence, the speed dating, I guess. And we see at the end of the story that she is more than just a one-off foil for Loki in this issue. Her presence in the alleyway, eavesdropping on Loki and Lorelai, speaks to her role as part of Team Loki. And just, again, such an interesting character, and so well used in this issue. A terrific uh, introduction. But also, I have to go back to the cover of Issue 2. Both my wife and daughter commented without any prompting that the man on the cover was John Travolta. The face is young, and the helmet sort of represents his crazy sideburn look from Pulp Fiction. It was weird, and now I wonder if the cover from Issue 1 was somebody I was supposed to recognize. If anyone has any info about the covers, let me know. The Verdict on Loki, Agent of Asgard, issues 1 and 2, a really solid start for a new title. Remember that I like Doom 2099 a ton. And there are similarities here. Both are books where the main character, the protagonist, has a uh, history of villainy, shall we say. And in this case, Loki is ostensibly, as far as we know, two issues in, truly seeking redemption, truly seeking a fresh start, a clean slate. A, a new chance to make first impressions. And at this point, as far as we know, that's a goal we can be supportive of, or, or that we can be sympathetic towards. In the interest of full disclosure, these issues have been covered on the Mighty Thorcast, a terrific show from Teal Productions, available on the comic book Noise Feed. Chef Terry Moore hosts the show with um, with someone else, I'm I'm drawing a blank, Issue number one of this title was covered on her episode ninety-seven, and issue two on episode ninety-nine. So, for another view on these issues, you know, for another take, uh, listen to those two episodes. That wraps up my coverage of Loki, Agent of Asgard issues one and two, bringing episode fifty-six of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode fifty-seven. We're going to finish up this first storyline of Loki, Agent of Asgard by covering issues 3 and 4 and 5. I don't know. 75 cents worth of comics in one episode? I know it sounds crazy, but it just might be crazy enough to work. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarter Bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcast's uncovering the bronze age and short box showcase also make their home links to facebook and twitter are there as well feedback for the show is welcome at relatively geeky at gmail.com and if you like what we've got going here please leave a review and a rating in itunes it'll help more people discover the show thanks again for listening Sir? Uh-huh.